It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, and watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV Plus. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. WNBA star Brittany Griner has been detained in Russia for weeks after authorities say they found vape cartridges containing cannabis oil in her luggage during a search at an airport near Moscow. The White House has not given any specifics about Griner's case. Here's Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Of course, we obviously do everything we can. Uh, when there are any reports of Americans who are detained uh, through the State Department and through diplomatic channels. However, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, who represents the district where Griner is from, has expressed concerns. We know that we have to move on her situation. She is in a circumstance that would generate a 10-year sentence. Uh, many of us believe that this is unwarranted. Joining me is Jeffrey Kahn, a professor at SMU Law School. Let's start by discussing the Russian legal system compared to the American system. Is it like night and day? I wouldn't say it's like night and day anymore, but there are some really substantial differences. We're familiar because it's so uh, prominent in our history and culture with the American conception of criminal justice. You could call this an adversarial system. The idea is that each side presents its version of the truth by conducting its own independent investigations, gathering its own witnesses, with a variety of procedural protections, uh, especially for the defense. But nothing really counts as evidence unless it's been presented at trial. And so the trial is the focus of our criminal justice system. It's a very dramatic event, and that's probably why we have so many American movies that center on trials. The Russian approach is much more influenced by the continental European approach to criminal justice. You're just not going to see the same sort of movies in Russia that focus on the trial. And that's because there's a different fundamental concept at the base of that criminal justice system. And that is that the search for objective truth is too important to leave to either of the parties. These are biased uh, sources by definition. And so the state has to be in control of the search for truth. And that means the state has a special official called the investigator, the Sledovatl, who will conduct a pre-trial investigation to gather exculpatory and inculpatory information 
to be used by both sides, the prosecutor and the defense. And with this assumption in mind, then, the trial, at least in the classic conception of an inquisitorial system, is really a verification to make sure that the investigator has done a proper job, followed all the procedures, and that the evidence that has been collected in what's called a case file has been verified. That means that a continental European trial is a much duller affair than the sensational drama of a Perry Mason moment in an American adversarial proceeding. Now, the Russian system has been changed a little bit. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, a new constitution was established, and that constitution provided in Article 123 that judicial proceedings shall be conducted on the basis of adversarial principles and the equality of the parties concerned. And with the help of American officials from the Justice Department and elsewhere advising Russians on the creation of their new criminal justice system, a lot of adversarial principles were added to that system. The thing is, the case file was never taken out. And it's very hard for adversarial principles to connect in a system that still has a case file. And so there's a clash there. And the case file, I would say, is still king. If it's not in the case file, it doesn't exist in the world. I know in Japan, the prosecution wins in something like 99% of cases. Is it similar in Russia? What's the rate of the prosecution winning? I don't know a specific rate uh, to give you, but I will say that acquittals are very, very unusual. And also, although there are other aspects of adversarial uh, principles involved in the Russian criminal justice system, for instance, juries have been reintroduced into Russia, they are not found in very many particular cases. It's limited by federal law which types of crimes qualify for juries, and not very many of them do. And so that means that once you get to trial, it can almost be too late. The savvy defense attorney is going to work hard to make sure that the case file presents all the information that needs to be presented and that information that is damaging to the defendant or has been collected in an improper way is excluded from the case file. But there's a heavy thumb on the scales of justice that is placed there by the state, which is in control of the case file. And the connection between the investigator and the prosecutor is a much stronger one than the connection between the investigator and the defense attorney. I've heard experts say that once someone gets arrested in Russia, it's nearly impossible to get them out from behind bars. I don't know that I have enough data to affirm that conclusion, but I will say that a lot of experts on the Russian criminal justice system and the Russian legal system have come to a conclusion that Russia operates what you could call a dual state. On the one hand, the criminal justice system and the entire judicial system is staffed with very competent, well-educated professional men and women in the form of judges and prosecutors and defense attorneys and investigators. And the system has gotten much, much better to the point where it can perform professionally, efficiently, and even fairly in the mine run of cases, ordinary cases of no concern to the state. But when the state takes an interest in a particular case or in a more corrupt manner, individual oligarchs or people with power take an interest in a particular case, that case can metaphorically move over to a political side of the docket, where it's very, very difficult to get a result 
that's solely based on law. There is much more concern for political influence in particular cases when the state or people of power in that system have an interest in those cases. We sometimes take for granted in the United States just how fortunate we are to have a federal judicial system and in most states, state judicial systems that are nearly incorruptible. So we don't have to worry about that dual state problem. But it is a problem in the Russian Federation. So that brings up Greiner. The timing of her arrest during the Ukraine conflict and the implications. Advocates and lawmakers fear that she's going to be used as a pawn by Russia and will, in essence, be a political prisoner. Well, I only know what's been reported in the popular press about Ms. Greiner's case. We do know that she was arrested at an airport in Russia in mid-February, uh, and she was accused under Article 2291 two of the Russian criminal code of smuggling uh, an unlawful substance into the Russian Federation in the form of, uh, as has been reported, hashish oil for a vape pen. Now, the particular provision under which she has been accused suggests uh, that she's alleged to have presented with a significant amount of this material. And so the uh, punishment can range from five to 10 years under the the Russian code. Is she a pawn in this? Well, I mean, it's impossible to say on on this evidence. If we turned the case around and a Russian citizen were to have flown into New York City and been stopped by our Customs and Border Protection officials and a sniffer dog alerted, as is alleged to have happened in Ms. Greiner's case, and that person's uh, luggage was found to contain an unlawful substance, that person would be charged with a crime, processed through our criminal justice system, just as Ms. Greiner is being processed through the Russian Federation system. So I really can't say whether this is some sort of a setup, as some defendants in the Russian criminal justice system have accused the state of setting them up, or if this is simply a case of someone coming into the country and being accused of a crime at a time when we are at a high moment of political tension because of the terrible events happening with the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The interesting point, however, is that because of the reputation of our system of criminal justice, it would really be a difficult point to prove or really to get most people to believe that somehow a Russian citizen had been set up by our system. But because of the history and legacies of the of the Russian system, that's a accusation that that gets a little more street credibility. She has the right to an attorney, and she does have a Russian attorney, and she has the right to contact the embassy. But according to Congressman Colin Allred, the U.S. Embassy has requested to speak to her, and the request hasn't been granted for three weeks. So do we already see the U.S. being limited in what it can do in this situation? Well, she um, is entitled to a defense attorney under uh, Russian law, and uh, she's entitled to a great many uh, procedural protections, although that case file will always occupy a central place in the proceedings. She should be uh, under a variety of legal sources, including international law, entitled to access to consular authorities, uh, the United States Embassy. I don't know why she should be denied that access. But uh, it certainly is very concerning. And current events mean that any 
involvement of an American citizen in the Russian criminal justice system has the potential to be a much larger event than the fact of his or her individual case. Do we know what's happening now? Should we assume that the Russian investigator is building the case against Greiner and then when he or she is done, we'll know what the charges are? Yes. Under the theory of an inquisitorial system, it's not that the investigator is building the case against Greiner, but the idea would be that the investigator is gathering all of the evidence. Now, under the Russian Criminal Procedure Code, a defense attorney now has the opportunity to do his or her own direct investigation, as well as to try to be involved in immediate way in the investigator's work. But yes, what's happening now is the development of the case file. And there are time limits on that. The initial time limit is two months, but that can be extended by a court uh, if the case uh, proceeds slowly or, or more time is needed. Likewise, that time limit is pretty closely tied to the limits on pretrial detention. So if Ms. Greiner is in pretrial detention now, the next stage that has to be completed is the completion of the case file. Is there a possibility of a plea deal here as there is in the United States? There are two off-ramps, I suppose you could call them, to this case. One is the equivalent of a guilty plea. The term in Russia for this is a special trial procedure. It's governed by Article 316 of the Criminal Procedure Code. Taking this route would allow the judge to enter a judgment of conviction and impose sentence without a full-blown trial. The sentence then could not exceed two-thirds of the highest punishment. So in Ms. Greiner's case, the highest punishment being 10 years, the guilty plea would bring it down to slightly under seven years. Another off-ramp is the equivalent of a plea bargain, although that term doesn't exist in the Russian Criminal Procedure Code. The term in Russian for this would be a pretrial cooperation agreement, but it's much closer to a plea bargain as we understand it. So if during this investigative stage, when the case file is being composed, Ms. Greiner, with her attorney, should so request, then if she were to provide active assistance to the investigation, if she were to expose alleged accomplices to the crime, for instance, to provide other assistance that is described under the Criminal Procedure Code, and if this was held by the court to have occurred voluntarily and with the participation of the defense lawyer, then the judge, at his or her discretion, could sentence the defendant to a much milder sentence including a suspended sentence or even release from serving the sentence. So that is a pretty significant off-ramp, but all the cards are really held by one side there. And it doesn't really have the impact on the Russian criminal justice system that our plea bargain system has on ours. Our system simply couldn't survive if we didn't have plea bargaining. It seems as if you know, this is sort of like a, a snowball rolling down a hill. If she is convicted and given prison time, what happens? Is there any way for the United States to get her out? I know that there are at least two former Marines that are being held in Russia. What can the United States do? As in any case, when there is a criminal conviction, the defense has a series of rights to appeal, and those can be pursued. There is always the uh, possibility, although this, in a sense, leaves the realm of law and enters the realms of politics and diplomacy, that states concerned about their own citizens who are 
convicted of crimes in other countries can seek to do prisoner exchanges or to request that the individual be allowed to serve his or her sentence in the home country. And you're right to mention that there are other American citizens who have been convicted of crimes in the Russian Federation. One is a young man named Trevor Reed, uh, who was a student at the University of North Texas. He was arrested in August 2019 when his friends called the police for help with him after he um, was intoxicated at a party. And he was alleged to have assaulted the police in their police car. Uh, the facts are highly contested, and his friends and family and allies allege that he was really a victim of the Russian criminal uh, justice system and that much of what he was alleged to have done was either grossly exaggerated or simply not true. He was convicted in July of 2020 by a Moscow court after an eight-day trial and sentenced to nine years in prison. The other person is a man named Paul Whelan. He was convicted of spying uh, and sentenced to 16 years in jail. He was arrested in December of 2018 uh, and allegedly by the Russians' uh, assertions caught red-handed with a flash drive containing state secrets. He has always maintained that he was set up and that this was a flash drive that he was handed by an acquaintance thinking that it, it just contained photographs of a private nature. So he says he was completely framed by the system. His trial began in March 20 and was mostly a closed-door trial. And in June of 2020, he was convicted and sentenced to 16 years in prison. So there is always a possibility of these prisoner swaps. Ms. Greiner is not a convicted prisoner, and so it's hard to imagine her in the same boat. Uh, but certainly it's a matter of concern that all of this is taking place in such a heated moment of high politics. The State Department says that we're engaged on the case, but they have no comment on it. Have there been efforts to get Reed and Whelan out? I'm sure that their families are um, trying everything that they possibly can and, and uh, working with government officials to try to do so. But uh, they've been convicted by a Russian court, and uh, the Russians will say that they are serving their sentences. And so how those discussions are continuing, uh, if they're continuing, is really something that I don't know. When you look at what the Russian system is all about and you see what has happened to Americans caught in the system, it seems like it's going to be a tough road ahead for Griner. It could conceivably be a long road ahead and, a, and certainly a tough road ahead. If she is in a pretrial detention facility in Russia, that's a, a very unpleasant place to be. The next pictures that we might see of her would show her behind a cage in a Russian courtroom defendants in Russian courtrooms are often held in uh, cages, which is another sharp distinction, of course, from what we uh, see in an American courtroom. We'll have to wait and see whether the case proceeds and how it proceeds, but it's certainly deeply concerning. Thanks, Jeff. That's Jeffrey Kahn of SMU Law School. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. <laughs> 
Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. In a unanimous decision, the Texas Supreme Court shut down a closely watched legal challenge to the state's abortion law, one of the most restrictive in the country. The law deputizes citizens to enforce a ban on abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy by suing anyone for helping a woman end an unwanted pregnancy past that cutoff date. The Texas High Court ruled that clinics and women's rights advocates can't sue state medical licensing officials because they have no enforcement authority. That means the law will remain in place for the foreseeable future. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Laurel Calkins. Laurel, tell us about the decision. Well, the thing that's really important to know about the Texas Supreme Court decision is it means that the abortion clinics lost a major battle, but they've not yet lost the whole war. The analogy would be the clinics have lost Mariupol, but they haven't lost Kiev. The reason why that is, and this is a bit of a tale, so stick with me, um, the Supreme Court only had a sliver of the case to look at in the first place because The U.S. Supreme Court in December essentially gutted the challenge that the Texas abortion clinics had brought to the law. They said, uh, we're not even going to look at constitutionality. We're just going to look at the mechanics of the law, which is very unique. And so the U.S. Supreme Court um, essentially gutted it down to where all that was left was the ability of the clinics to sue state medical licensing professionals to try to, to stop the law, which is pretty narrow. And um, the Supreme Court sent that over to the Fifth Circuit with orders to send it down to have it tried immediately. And then the Fifth Circuit, as it so often does lately, decided to intentionally misread those instructions and instead detoured the question over to the Texas Supreme Court and said, uh, Texas Supreme Court, we want you to second guess the U.S. Supreme Court and were they right? And even though one of the Texas Supreme Court justices warned, if we disagree with the Supreme Court, it will be like thumbing our noses at the high court, that's exactly what the Texas Supreme Court decided to do. They threw out the clinic's ability to sue these medical licensing professionals, saying they don't even indirectly enforce the law. So essentially, the case is now dead in that, in that lane. That piece of the challenge is now dead. The clinics have no one left to sue proactively to try to stop um, any of this litigation. 
What other lawsuits are there that could help abortion providers in Texas? Well, fortunately for the clinics, there's three other fights ongoing. Um, they've been largely under the radar, and I'm, we're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen to them at this point. One of them uh, is happening in Texas state courts where a number of these same clinics that, that went to the state, went to the Supreme Court, uh, these clinics and uh, abortion supporters and therapists and various others sued a bunch of anti-abortion activists, primarily Texas Right to Life, and others who had threatened to sue them as vigilantes under this Texas abortion ban. And all of those actions were rolled together in front of one judge in Austin, and that judge looked at it and said, well, that law is unconstitutional, and I will protect you people from those particular lawsuits, but I won't issue a larger block against the law at this stage of the litigation. So an intermediate Texas state appellate court is chewing on that, and eventually that will go back up to the Texas Supreme Court, which should look at that point at constitutionality of the law. They may, because they're all Republican court, may decide to sidestep the issue once again, but hopefully they will look at the constitutionality at that point. That said, the best challenge that's going right now is way over in Chicago federal court. You may say, how did it get there? Well, um, some of the vigilantes were empowered by this Texas abortion law to actually bring lawsuits as the way the law intended against an abortionist who uh, performed a first trimester abortion on a woman in Texas. And he admitted it in a newspaper article. He was trying to draw litigation in order to um, try to get a court case started. So three vigilantes sued him. And under the law, these people can be anywhere. They don't have to be in Texas. And one of them happened to be in Chicago. So he used some legal maneuvers to get all of those little vigilante actions against him transferred to federal court in Chicago. And what's good about that for the clinics is that that is now sitting in front of a democratically appointed judge by Bill Clinton. And that judge is not on the same appellate track that would take his decision to either the Texas Supreme Court or to the Fifth Circuit in New Orleans, which is diehard anti-abortion. So that judge has already said, I'm going to look at the constitutionality of this question. And so it really could be decided in Chicago. And at, at that point, it could go back up to the Supreme Court in D.C. And then there's a third case, which was the much ballyhooed Biden administration uh, lawsuit against the, uh, the Texas law, which got sucked in with the clinic's challenge to the U.S. Supreme Court. U.S. Supreme Court rejected it on an emergency basis, sent it back down to the Fifth Circuit, and we fully expect the Fifth Circuit to strangle it in its crib, so that's probably going nowhere. The best bet is the Chicago litigation, in my mind. But this case is going back to the Fifth Circuit. For the Fifth Circuit to do what? Well, under Fifth Circuit precedent, uh, the Fifth Circuit has to follow the advice of the Texas Supreme Court because they said, give us advice. Well, now they have to follow the advice. And the Texas Supreme Court said, under our interpretation of state law, the clinics cannot sue those state licensing officials. And that was the only piece of the case that was still alive when it came down from the U.S. Supreme Court. So it's, the Fifth Circuit's just going to rubber stamp the death certificate. And that'll be that. Laurel, the Texas abortion law has been at the Supreme Court twice. Is it possible that it will go back to the Supreme Court? Yeah, but there wouldn't be any point in it because the Supreme Court will say, well, we're just going to send it back down. It would be a repeating loop. I, I, just, I don't think that one has any any life left. And even the clinics have said, you know, this one's dead. We're, we're not going to be able to go anywhere with this one. Tell us what's happened, you know, on the ground in Texas. Are there any abortion providers who had enough gumption to stay open and continue to provide abortions despite 
the fact that they may be sued by anybody who learns about it? Yeah, the anybody anywhere law. Um, yeah, the thing that's, that's the most troubling about this, there are there are clinics that have remained open, but they are sharply curtailing the types of abortions they provide. They're doing only very early stage abortions, which under the law, uh, they, they can't perform an abortion after uh, cardiac activity is detected in the fetus. And that's generally around six weeks of pregnancy, which is a time when most women don't even know they're pregnant yet. So very few women are getting abortions at clinics anymore. The uh, statistics show that abortions in Texas have fallen 60% since uh, September 1st of last year when this law took effect. On-the-ground evidence shows that many Texas women have been able to travel out of state to receive uh, abortion care or have received mail-order abortion pills, um, which are medically accepted up to a certain stage of early pregnancy. So there are women are still, Texas women are still being uh, able to get services, but they're not doing it in in clinics anymore because the threat of litigation is just crippling. Um, The way the law is set up, that's the whole thing. The the law was set up in a fairly diabolical fashion. It was fashioned so that any vigilante is now deputized to be a bounty hunter. They can sue anyone who aids or abets an abortion in Texas after this cardiac activity cutoff period, and they can get a minimum of a $10,000 damages award, whether they have any connection to this abortion whatsoever, which is sort of not the way laws are supposed to work. You're supposed to be compensated for damages you've suffered, and that's not how this law works. And so also um, the people who bring the lawsuit, the, the bounty hunters, all of their legal expenses will be paid. But if the clinics happen to win, none of their expenses will be paid. They can't recover their expenses from their opponents. So the law is very cleverly stacked to make it crippling for uh, clinics to run the risk of being exposed to this kind of litigation because they could sue, somebody could sue the receptionist. Somebody could sue the Uber driver who drops the patient off. Somebody could sue the doctors, the nurses. Um, There's people who want to sue the insurance companies that pay for this. They want to sue the, the Women's Reproductive Rights Fund that have uh, come forward to try to help women get out of state. I mean, it's it's pretty broad, it's pretty broad ranging. And other states are now following this law, attempting to follow this law, mimicking what Texas has done. Absolutely, the copycats are already lining up, but several different states, and many of them are not particularly abortion friendly. But Planned Parenthood said in Oklahoma that 50% of its patients are now from Texas. And Oklahoma just, I believe it's this last week, um, in their House of Representatives passed a law that's even worse than the Texas law. So it will essentially shut down Oklahoma as an avenue for Texas women. Louisiana only has one functioning clinic, and so they're overwhelmed, and they're having to route their own patients to Arkansas, which also has restrictions, and Mississippi, which has even worse restrictions. And so... Colorado has been getting uh, a lot of the Texas patients. New Mexico has been getting a lot of patients. But there's so many women that are so desperate to seek care um, that they're overwhelming the system. So women are being pushed further and further into their pregnancies, which makes things more costly and more dangerous for them to undergo abortions. And we understand that women are now being flown to uh, New York, New England, California, um, other venues where they can find an appointment before it becomes too late for them to have an abortion. And in uh, not only in Oklahoma, Idaho passed an exact mirror image of Texas's law 
I think yesterday. So it's, it's spreading. And what's really interesting is the mechanism which prevents people that are being targeted for their constitutional right, exercising their constitutional rights, the mechanism can be used to undercut any constitutional right. And California kind of decided to flip that script. And uh, they have been California has introduced gun control legislation that's designed the same way so that anybody who objects to someone who uses an automatic rifle in a gun crime or sells automatic rifles or whatever, they can bring these same kind of vigilante actions, or at least California's trying that theory. We'll see how it works. Laurel, I noticed that the Texas governor said that you know, the Texas Republican politicians vowed to keep fighting for these abortion laws. Are the majority of Texans opposed to abortion? I don't think so. I haven't seen the latest results, but um, it's like with most of these culture war issues, you have a very vocal percentage on the far right that drives the agenda. And these are the people that vote these uh, hard right politicians into office in the primary elections, and then they don't get defeated by Democrats in the statewide elections. So the political landscape is is dominated by anti-abortion. The actual countryside, I don't think, feels that way. It, it may be getting a closer call, but I don't even think we're 50-50. I think, uh, I think Texas is still moderately pro-choice. I don't have the latest numbers, though. The strategy behind this law seems to be working for anti-abortion activists. It seems as if the uh, anti-abortion activists have been reading the business Bible, uh, The Art of War by Sun Tzu. <gasps> Because they're actually winning by not playing. Uh, by having this crippling threat of litigation hanging over the clinics and the abortion doctors, where if you do anything, we're going to come sue you for everything you've got. Well, the threat is enough. They don't have to actually bring the suit. And by not bringing the suit, then the abortion clinics and the doctor's hands are tied. They can't challenge it in court. So it's the art of war winning by not playing. And it seems to be working spectacularly. Thanks, Laurel. That's Laurel Calkins. Bloomberg Legal Reporter. This skirmishing comes as the Supreme Court deliberates over a Mississippi case that could overturn the landmark 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion nationwide. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcasts. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.